0: IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss the new album by Wednesday, the best albums by Drive-By Truckers, and the potential best album of the decade. Yes, we're getting ahead on that one. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He survived the boy genius discourse of 2023. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you?
1: So, because of the big military presence in San Diego, you'll see these TV ads like, if you were stationed at Camp Lejeune or Camp Pendleton from 1970 to 1990, you may be entitled to compensation. And I feel like, In 20 years, there's going to be like a music writer Twitter version of mesothelioma where someone's just going to get like a $20 million settlement because their brain was just completely warped by the boy genius discourse.
0: Yeah, you know, we, I just said, we talk about the biggest indie news of the week on the show, and I feel like as much as we didn't want to, we have to touch on the Boy Genius Discourse, because that is the biggest indie news of the week. It's petered out, I think, by now. Uh, but it was hot and heavy over the weekend. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, you know, summer's coming up here. We should have, like, a no-fighting rule on weekends. <laughs> there should be no discourse after 5 p.m. <laughs> Eastern Standard Time on Friday Afternoon, and then it can resume at like 8 a.m. Monday morning.
1: I think there's like a law like that in France where it's illegal to answer a work e- email after seven o'clock or whatever. But I think this is the, just uh, an argument to move release dates back to Tuesday. This is no way uh, to spend a weekend.
0: Exactly. It, it just spilled over into the weekend. You know, we every year, or I guess every half year, we do our IndyCasty awards. And one of the categories is most annoying story. And I feel like the Boy Genius Discourse is the everything, everywhere, all at once of this category. Just an unstoppable (laughs) juggernaut. I don't know if anything's going to threaten it. I don't know what what could happen. We need like the Godfather Part (laughs) 2 of annoying music stories to challenge the Boy Genius Discourse. Let's just run through uh, everything here because it it got very reactionary. Very quickly. uh, Over the weekend. Uh, I should say at the start that uh, the Boy Genius Record, called The Record, we talked about this last week, the Metascore, do you know what the Metascore is? Just take a guess. What do you think the Metascore, the Metacritic score is for this
1: Boy Genius Record? I guess it's like 92. Okay, so it's actually a little bit lower than that. It's a 90. Okay. Well, that's like a rare beast, you know? Like, there's only, like, what, like... There, no, nothing ever gets lower than a 70 and nothing ever gets higher than a 90.
0: Well, I looked this up and none of the records that the Boy Genius people have put out individually, Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, and Julie Baker, none of them got a 90 except for Punisher. Punisher wow. got a 90. Well, I mean, that is the best of the bunch, though. <laughs> it is. It's also, I think, a lot better than this Boy Genius record. I mean, not to relitigate yeah. this, but I, and I would say that the other albums that these artists have put out individually are better than this Boy Genius record. Uh, That score seems incredibly inflated to me. So we have very hyperbolic praise of this record. Then you have very hyperbolic uh, negativity about this record. There was a viral blog post Mm -hmm. where the writer basically called it like the, like the worst album of the year so far. Yeah. Uh, Which it's not. (laughs) That's (laughs) that's hyperbolic too. Although did you read that post?
1: like yeah it was like 400 words and you know like if it was this long track like dissecting the lyrics and talking about like you'll see this every now and again with like Ted Lasso or whatever where there's like a real considered nuanced takedown of it and you know after what you were describing like look i'm not um endorsing this person's opinion or the blog itself but like sometimes you just got to see some like straight up hater shit yeah it was just uncut. to balance
0: it out yeah it's uncut haterism and there were some other things bubbling up online about it. Basically, there was this thing about how this Boy Genius record, it represents everything that's wrong with indie music, that if you like this record, you know, you're a boring person, essentially. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, very, you're like a normie person who is pretending to be progressive in some way. And then you have the reaction to that, which is <laughs> if you don't like this record, you are a sexist and or a homophobe. So yeah. the, hype, the, the the hyperbole is answered with more hyperbole. It's just going off the rails. One thing that I did think was funny, and I, I regret not noting this in my review, was the song Leonard Cohen on the uh, Boy Genius record. There's a line mm-hmm. in there where uh, Lucy Dacus is making fun of Leonard Cohen and mm-hmm. something about him like writing horny poetry. It's kind of a clunky line. And that yeah. got... <laughs> like roasted i think vulture did an entire story about like how to properly reference leonard cohen in a song they did Cause, yeah because like I, his I del rey did the same like she referenced the same leonard cohen song like on her record yeah
1: like that line's becoming kind of hallelujah level of like overuse so uh, that part i get um i think succession was a good way to use leonard cohen though
0: yeah that was a funny that was the famous yeah. blue raincoat connor roy singing at karaoke um but yeah it just became this thing and this happens with anything that breaks big in culture where it's no longer just a record it's a way to write about people that you think are annoying or awful and (laughs) so if you like the record that signifies something if you don't like the record that signifies something and in reality, look, I mean, I think we're on the same page on this. If I was giving like this a pitchfork score, this this album, I would have given it like a six point seven. That's where I think it is. Mm. I think there's some good songs on the record. I think there's some clunkers on the record. Yeah, it's somewhere in the middle for me. You know, on the on the Rolling Stone scale, would be like a little bit more than three stars out of five. Like that to mm. me is what this album is. Is that where you're yeah. at? I I think it's in the middle. It's not it's not a masterpiece, which is what I think a lot of the reviews we're saying uh, i think it's overstated it's not the worst album of the year <laughs> like it's not oh, that. Geez. it's somewhere in the middle i
1: think yeah and i actually like the fact that there like it, there, there's like some of those clunky lines because you know someone i think rightfully compared it to the 1975 in that it was a lyric that seems like it was written to be read rather than sung when you read it on the page it doesn't quite work but it just kind of reminds me of how much fun it is to have a band like the 1975, which is, you know, still pretty esteemed. They make most year end lists, but you can make fun of them without worrying about ruining your weekend. Like, I, I think that they, as long as they're around to just kind of represent that, free, you can take a free shot at them and there's some stakes, but. Um, yeah, I just, I, I wish that we had more bands like that. I don't think Black Country, New Road's popular enough to qualify, but they're also that sort of band where you can just say, yeah, this, is, this shit's annoying. The people who like it are weird. I don't like this. And like people are like, yeah, I kind of get it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Boy
0: Genius is not that band. I feel like no. if you're going to take a shot at Boy Genius, you got to be prepared to uh, take some shots yourself, which is fine, you know? Look, I wrote a mixed review of that album. Some people didn't like it. That's fine. It's all conversation. Uh, But I have to say, and this is a segue into our next topic, that there's an album out this week that I think, to me, it spotlights or reiterates some of the weaknesses of that Boy Genius record in terms of the lyrics. Because this album, I think, has some of my favorite lyrics of the year. And what I like about it is that it really puts you in a specific place. Uh, there isn't a lot of music these days that I feel like comes from like a a place in the country where you feel like it it's of that place. I feel like this is just true. I, I wrote a review of this album. I should say what the album is. It's Wednesday. It's Mudhoney's Plastic Eternity. <laughs> it's the new Wednesday album. It's called Ratsaw God. And in my review of this album that went up on Upper X this week, I should say that we both wrote about this record. And we I did. think our pieces went up the same day. You wrote a profile for The <laughs> Ringer, really good piece, lots of good details in that story. And I, d- I wrote a straight-up review because I knew that there there was like a million profiles of this band <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. that were going to be dropped. So I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to interview Carly Hartsman, even though I like her a lot. I talked to her briefly when I interviewed M.J. Lenderman back in December when his record came out. Anyway, um, this record to me it it reminds me of like the indie rock of the '80s and '90s in that back then it mattered if you were from Minneapolis or Seattle or Athens, Georgia. Like the music that came from particular towns had a flavor to it, and that's something that I feel like has been lost in the post-internet world where it seems like where you're from doesn't really matter that much. I mean, there's a lot of bands from Philadelphia, for instance, and aside from, like, tweeting Go Birds every week <laughs> during football season, I don't know if being from Philly is, in, says that, you know, it informs their music. You know, I don't, I, I don't really hear, I mean, there's some, exa- I mean, like the Wonder Years, I feel like, there's some Philly-specific stuff
1: there, but for yeah, the most but that's because they really. say "Go Birds" on like every other song. <laughs> like true. they, 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 have, they are like "Go Birds" the album.
0: But uh, you know, this record it, it, it takes place in something that I like to call the Gummo South, and mm, I, ref- I like that phrase. <laughs> I refer to there's uh, there's a movie from 1997 called Gummo, directed by Harmony Corinne, which I think takes place in Nashville. It might be Memphis, but I'm pretty sure it's Nashville. And it's basically, you know, a very episodic film, a lot of non-sequitur type scenes, where the focus is on this, like, grotesque imagery that is so grotesque that, along with being disturbing, it becomes darkly comic. And this Wednesday record, I think, has a similar vibe to it. You know, Carly Hartsbin writes about Burned down Dairy Queens and sex shops by the highway that have biblical names and houses that have cocaine and guns guns in the wall and like bad sexual experiences that take place in cars, you know, like all this kind of stuff that is taken from life and in life it feels mundane, but when she writes about it in the songs, it does that thing that art does where it elevates it and makes you really feel like you're part of this world. I mean, just like the title, like the, the, the title of the first song
1: is, uh, what is it? It's like rot, hot, rotten, rot- hot, yeah. Hot, rotten, gra- grass smell,
0: hot, which, rot- I mean grass smell, which I feel like just reading that fills my nostrils with the smell of like late July in the mm-hmm. South, you know, it, 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 even in like in the Midwest, like I know what she's writing about there. Um, so just like the specificity of this record i really responded to i mean mean, do you know what i mean like are you on the same page with that
1: yeah because i mean i first off i I just have to give a shout out to carly hartzman jewish excellence in the south like (laughs) once i read that they she went to like jewish summer camp uh we talked about that a lot that didn't quite make the cut there was just it's like one of those like oh my god like this is such a cool thing. I want to share this, but you can't find any place in the article for it to make sense. So I got to cut it. But um, I think you're right in that, that it it is an album with a real sense of place. Um, And, you know, having lived in numerous places in the South uh, throughout my life, that really, uh, that resonated with me as well. I think that you're absolutely correct in that, you know, you could be a band from Philly just by nature of your sound. If, like I'll hear a band I'm like okay they're probably from Philly just because they have a certain set of sonic signifiers that have absolutely nothing to do with the city itself but I don't think this band could be themselves if they were for anywhere else in the country which is um, I think one of the major draws of this band Um, and also and and this kind of carries off the Boy Genius discussion um, a lot of the the deliberation about that record was about like how important it should be um to consider like their public performance of friendship and like how people might be drawn to that after the pandemic and I think that's what really helped Wednesday elevate themselves beyond similar sounding bands and I think that's true now like I th- beyond the fact that it's like a big record and a good record I just think a lot of people want to interview Wednesday because they seem like a fun band to talk to which they totally are like they they lived up to everything I expected Uh, when I interviewed them, MJ Lenderman or Jacob Lenderman, exactly what you would think talking to him, uh, Carly, exactly what you think. The other two people are exact. They give you exactly what you expect and they just seem like they really, really like each other, uh, in a way that I think is unusual because a, they're a band and B they're, you know, not like kind of removed from online stuff. So, um, you know, I, I just really appreciate the fact they made a really good record. It would, re- I would not want that cognitive dissonance of like really liking this band but like being kind of mad on their music.
0: Yeah, and and we should fill in some of the background here for people who don't know Wednesday's. You know, we've talked about them on the show, but they're a rising band. They're still finding an audience, uh, and we both love them, and they're getting a lot of great press on this record. But this is a band from Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, centered around this singer-songwriter named Carly Hartsman. Uh they really broke. I don't want to say big, but broke in like an indie big sense with their 2021 record *Twin Plagues*, and that record really solidified this vibe that they have. It's been called country gaze, which is which <laughs> is kind of it's kind of a, a clunky phrase, but it's alt-country with like heavy guitars that sound. Kind of like shoegaze, kind of like grunge. Like, in my review, I likened it to uh, Southern Rock Opera, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, and Siamese Dream kind of being put yeah, together I mean, in one record. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. So, it, you know, it has that drive-by truckers quality of storytelling lyrics about the South with some of the alt-country stuff from Lucinda Williams, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, and then, again, like the grungy alt-rock type guitar sounds that you get on... Siamese Dream. What's fascinating to me about this band, because you're right, they are a band. And I think each person makes important contributions. But Carly Hartzman is basically like, okay, MJ Lenderman, I know you're a great songwriter, but I'm good. I can take the reins of this. This is my band. I don't need any songs from you. And she's totally justified. Like She can carry this band on her own. It's just amazing to me that you have a songwriter like that good. And, I, you know, MJ Lenderman, both songs, that was tied for my favorite album of of last year. But he doesn't contribute any songs here. This is Carly Hartsman's band. This is her vision. And she is a different songwriter than Lenderman is. Lenderman, I think, is a more overtly comic songwriter. I mean, there is certainly pathos in his songs, I think. But uh, Hartsman, I think she also has funny aspects of her songwriting, but it is... Again, this sort of observational surrealism going on in her in her lyrics. There's a lot of darkness going on. And similar to the Gummo comparison I made, some of the things that she writes about are so grotesque that they become funny because she just delivers them in this sort of dispassionate, deadpan way. Uh, and it's a really interesting perspective. And again, it creates a world that I think really jumps out. Uh, and you're right there are other bands that are working in this vein and we've talked about them on the show this sort of countryish type songwriting with heavier guitars on it but i think her lyrical perspective really sets wednesday apart and and that for me is like what really puts this record over i i like the music a lot on the record the things that they're drawing from i think i said this in my review it's like if you made a record in a lab to cater to people with, like, my kind of taste, like this record would come out. But the lyrics, her, just her ability as a writer, I think, elevates it to something beyond just sort of catering to that kind of alt-country, heavy guitar type thing.
1: Yeah, and for me, it brings up, like, not just Drive-By Truckers in the lyrical sense, but I would also say Rilo Kiley. And I say this because, like, those two albums, like Decoration Day and The Execution of All Things, were just like massive for me when I was, you know, like 22. And most of my life revolved around like getting drunk and being stupid. And like those lyrics, like, felt like they take place in a real part of the world, which kind of separates it from a lot of not similar sounding music, but like similarly written music that. Just seems like the lines, the the like you could tell like which lines are supposed to be quotable, but they're very like kind of Twitter quotey. And you know, like like Rilo Kiley, like Drive By Truckers, like Wednesday's lyrics take place in a real world where it's actually like physical and visceral. Which um, you know, I could hear a lot of bands trying to do stuff like this and just having it fall flat, or just having it sound too catered to the uh, to like. Twitter quotes.
0: Yeah, I I think what sets Hartsman apart is that she's showing rather than telling. I I, I think that there's a strain of songwriting right now in indie music where it is almost like, like tweet lyrics, where you're yeah. explicitly saying I'm sad, I'm depressed. And I don't feel like Hartsman does that as a writer. I think she's describing scenarios where you can ascertain how she feels, but it's not just laying it out for you in a direct kind of way. And and I just prefer that kind of songwriting. I think, again, there there is a sort of like, almost like a physical sense of her lyrics where you feel like you're seeing and tasting and hearing and smelling the things that she's describing and it's a a very sensory type of of writing that i think is special and i i really respond to it um i have to shout out too i read a review on the alternative uh by uh grace robin somerville she used the phrase dirtbag hymns to describe this (laughs) record i like that phrase a lot
1: I think in my, the ringer one that we went with teenage dirtbag hymnals.
0: <laughs> See, yeah. Dirtbag hymn, Get that in there. I think that, that that's really good. Um, you know, one thing that you brought up to me this week when we were, cause we were DMing about this record is how is this record going to impact drive by truckers? Because, uh, you know, Carly Hartsman has been very vocal about drive by truckers being an influence. And, uh, She even, like, references Drive-By Truckers on this record. I think it's in the song Bath
1: County, which is one of the best songs on the record. It sings about... uh, Narcan. and Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, like, like hitting a guy with Narcan and then listening to Drive-By Truckers, which, you know, is like a Drive-By Truckers lyric if, like, they said Skinner. Right, exactly. And and you were like, you know, is this going to bring
0: a younger audience to Drive-By Truckers? Because I think, you know, Drive-By Truckers, they're a band... You know, they've been around for a long time. They, I think, like over twenty-five years. Yeah, forever. And, and like I love them, and and you love them, but they they are hampered, I think, by by two things. Number one is the band name, which <laughs> even you know Patterson Hood himself. I have interviewed him many times, and he's often lamented that this name. I think he said, you know, it sounded good at the Star Bar in Atlanta thirty years ago. Uh, maybe not so much now. I mean. For people who are put off by the name, just imagine if, like, Hoobastank was as good as Radiohead, you know? (laughs) I think there's a similar thing there, where it's a dumb name for, like, a really smart band. Uh, So there's that thing. The other thing is that I think they're perceived as a band, especially if you're, like, 23 years old. They're perceived as a band that, like, your dad listened to. Like, -hmm. like, didn't you say that, like, that Lenderman told you he hated this band because his dad listened to them? Like, like he likes them now, but he hated them at first.
1: Yeah, which is, like, such a great detail. Uh, He said, like, you know, my dad listened to them and, like, you know, they heard us. And then what turned him around is when they, when he found out that uh, Patterson Hood, um, like, people wouldn't talk to him after he wrote the song Buttholeville, which, again, we're talking about a band called drive by truckers who made a record called gangsta Billy, who made a song called Buttholeville, And you would figure like this is on some ween shit, but um, yeah, I mean, I think this is exactly the kind of band, particularly in the South that um, if you like this band and mind you, I lived in Athens, Georgia, which was like their second home from 2003 to 2006, which is peak truckers. If you're like a certain type of person from that region you really identify with this band. And I could just imagine uh, MJ's or Jake's dad playing Southern rock opera at when he's like 12 years old and just wants to listen to like Blink-182 or whatever. I'm just, I wonder
0: like how old his dad is.
1: And because <laughs> it's like,
0: I realize like, oh, I, I could have been his dad. Like I'm old enough now. <laughs> if I'd had a kid in my early 20s, he could be MJ Linderman right now. So that's kind of like a mind uh, fuck for me. If you are into this Wednesday record and you love the idea of like cinematic storytelling lyrics married to like heavy guitars, I really think that Drive-By Truckers are like the best at that formula. You know, there's a lot of bands I think that Drive-By Truckers get lumped into. Hold Steady, uh, Mountain Goats, you know, that generation of bands. I think Drive-By Truckers is probably the best out of those bands uh wow I, don't you think i would I I, mean, I I personally would i i feel like
1: maybe i'm in the minority on that one but i think that they're the best out of that crew. Well, I, I mean i do but it's only because you know i'm not like a huge hold steady or mountain ghost fan and you are but that's well i'm like, not a Mountain a ghost bit... fan really I, I, okay I, I have to say but
0: i i am a hold steady fan but i think just like, the length of Drive-By Trucker's career and, like, the different things that they've done just puts them mm-hmm. over the top for me. Um, you know, you mentioned, like, those early albums that they put out in the late 90s, Gangsta Billy, and there's an album called Pizza Deliverance. you know, Yes, that's the other one. There's sort of, like, a jokiness, I think, to some of those early records. And then uh, they put out Southern Rock Opera. I think that was 2000.
1: That, that was, yeah, 2000 or 2001. I got that, like, in my last year of college at Virginia. And, you know, as somewhat, like, even though I'm not from Alabama and I can't really relate to a lot of the growing up stuff that Patterson talks about, as someone who kind of is fascinated and repelled by the South while living in it. I mean that was that stuff was just so massively impactful yeah. um on me. And you know, going to there's like nothing like seeing a drive by trucker show on a UGA football weekend in Athens, like some of the drunkest times I've ever had in public. They play like four hour shows and like I don't make it past the first. Yeah, they're passing uh, around
0: like a whiskey bottle on stage. I don't I don't know if they still do that or not. They probably don't. <laughs> um But Southern Rock Opera is like really like where they arrive. As who they are and that record is notable as you as you said that you know patterson hood becomes this philosopher of southern rock where in one respect they're the epitome of a southern rock band and then in another respect they're they're critiquing southern rock and southern culture and what it means and drive-by truckers moving forward becomes this band that can you know be the band that plays in a college football town, and play like a long drunken show, but they're also very thoughtful about social justice issues and addressing like the crappy parts of the South too, and mm-hmm. and, and pushing you know things forward in a in a cultural kind of way. I mean, I think like that run in the early two thousands that we'll call it the Ian Cohen college run <laughs> of dirty South of a, of a Southern rock opera Decoration Day. And the Dirty South, that's like yeah. the, probably the heart of their discography. And if you're going to get started with this band, that's that's where you want to go first.
1: Absolutely. Because, that you know, uh, Decoration Day is my favorite. I think that's the one where, you know, the Patterson Hood history lessons and the Mike Cooley character sketches and Jason Isbell's more personal kind of sad sack stuff are really the most in alignment. Dirty South is like just a tick below it um but yeah like uh that that's where you get like the three-headed monster right there and once that balance got thrown off i think what was the two the 2006 one like a blessing and a curse that was like a 10 song album or something like that and i had moved from georgia to california i sort of lost track brighter than creation dark i remember liking a few songs off that though but i mean if you start like i don't think you can understand this band without listening to southern rock opera but um i think decoration day the next two are the best like and, and listening experience. Yeah,
0: those are the two, I think, big masterpieces of, of the catalog. I would go with the Dirty South, barely over Decoration Day. And the reason why is because this three-headed monster you're talking about, you, know, you have Jason Isbell, who at this point is the most famous songwriter to be associated with this band. You have Patterson Hood, who's the most prolific, and is, again, I think the mastermind of the band. And then you have Mike Cooley, who isn't the most famous, and he's not the most prolific, but he's my favorite songwriter in the band.
1: Is he the Lucy Dacus of uh, Drive By Truckers? <laughs> uh,
0: well, I don't know if I would make that comparison, God, just... but but he is the guy you know who has the highest batting average. When he does write a song, it is more often than not a total banger, <laughs> and he has the coolest sounding voice. He absolutely
1: looks... Zip City.
0: Yeah, zip city. He looks the coolest on stage. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Like yeah. he's the guy that you want to be when you see this band. And I think the he dirty looks. St- he looks like the guys he sings about, which I think is important because I think that aspect of like the whole setting the mountain goats is what sort of keeps me at a distance. Yeah, like right. Mike Cooley looks like he might stab some guy. <laughs> exactly. Like yeah, because Patterson
0: Hood is this gregarious, very kind man. You feel like he would never hurt a fly. And I don't think Mike Cooley is actually like a violent person or anything, but he just looks like a tough guy. He looks like if you put him in a corner in like a dive bar, he might break a beer bottle and, you know, go after your neck with like the broken bottle. Um, But uh, I just love his songs on the Dirty South. I think his, you know, like Where the Devil Don't Stay and and Cottonseed, which, man, look up the song Cottonseed. That is like a Cormac McCarthy novel. Just an amazing Mm. song uh talking about this like hitman uh it, it, it's it's incredible um of the post isbel records, I actually am a big fan of brighter than Creations dark from two thousand eight i uh, to me, I would put that with the classic isbel records it's a little long it's like I think it's nineteen songs, yeah, it's long as fuck but um <laughs> I still think there's some some of my all time favorite drive by Truckers songs are on that record, and I'll also say like for, like from the last say six, seven years. American band is a really great record and it is it shows like the turn that they've taken in recent years in a more sort of explicitly political direction and again being this progressive band in like a southern rock milieu it's a very interesting thing and i feel like that in a way is also influential on a band like Wednesday uh, i think Carly Hartsman has even said that she became a fan of this band because they could be a southern rock band, but also have that progressive bent to it. And that's become yeah, a bit more pronounced in, in recent years. So definitely check out those early 2000s records if you don't know this band. Uh, and throw in Brighter Than Creation's Dark and American Band in there too. But if, if you don't know this band, you're in for a treat. I think they have a great catalog. All right, well, let's get to our mailbag segment. And we're just going to answer some listener emails here for the rest of the episode because we've gotten a lot of emails lately. We actually have some really good questions uh, to ponder here. So thank you all for writing in. It's always great to hear from you. You can hit us up at AndyCastMailbag at at gmail.com. Ian, you want to read this first letter?
1: Yeah, sure. So we got Jake from Austin, um, who's a big fan of the show. And Jake wants to know about album of the decade contenders saying we are three years into the 2020s and i was wondering if any album of the decade contenders have dropped yet for example at this point the 2010s we already had good kid mad city channel orange and visions if it was the 2000s we'd have is this it kid a and yankee hotel foxtrot uh do you think that any releases from the last three years compare to those albums and do we have any releases that have a chance of topping a best of list seven years from now it's a great question, Jake. I I, I want to say Jake from State Farm here.
0: I, I, when you said Jake from Austin, I was thinking Jake from State Farm. Um, okay, so my short answer to that is no. We haven't in the last <laughs> three
1: years uh, had records compared Nothing to but trash. and uh, <laughs> Nothing but trash so far. We
0: haven't had a Kid A or a, Is This It? I, I don't think. Um, I want to run this by you because this is an interesting question to me because the obvious difference with this decade versus those other decades that he was referencing is that this decade began with a global plant pandemic that (laughs) grounded culture and everything else for two years or so. So that affected how many albums were, were released, how many albums were made and just how we engaged with albums. And also I think just our perception of time. Like I know for myself, the early 2020s are a blur because we were all just doing the same thing every day. You know, it wasn't... We weren't engaging with the world in any kind of normal way. So I don't think you can really compare this decade to other decades in that respect. Um, there are albums that I think you could mention as being important and influential. But if I were to bet on whether the album that will be considered the best of the decade or the albums that will be considered the best of the decade. If I had to bet on whether those albums have already come out or if they're going to be coming out in the future, I would bet on the future. I just think that the pandemic threw off everything. And I, you know, the other thing I would say here is, or I'm curious to find out is, are people going to want to even revisit albums that they associate with the pandemic? Yeah, because there, because, because, and I don't know what you have in mind here. I mean, I think there's some obvious choices we could say, like Phoebe Bridgers' Punisher, for instance, or Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters. You know, very critically lauded records. But are people are 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 they just going to associate those records like with the time that they were locked inside, and are they going to want to revisit those albums for that reason, or will those albums be able to transcend their moment in time? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I feel like that's going to affect maybe how those albums are perceived though like 5 years from now. So yeah, I don't know. I just, I just feel like those albums, you know, those those classics, The, the Kid A's and My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy and Good Kid Bad City. I just don't know if those have come out yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, this gets into a couple of considerations. First of which is that, you know, do we cons this 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 topic that we've talked about many a time like whether a decade begins in 20 in like the zero year or the one year because You know, Fetch the Bolt Cutters is the album that has the critical acclaim of the aforementioned. But I don't see it as like, I see it being like a very self-contained phenomenon. And that hasn't really affected things in the same way that Kid A or Good Kid Mad City have. And, you know, I don't think it was expected to either. Um, As I talked about on the last episode, I think we are in the Punisher era of music. and, And we won't move on to the next thing until... I don't know the Punisher follow up happens. Um I do I think a lot of those albums, you know, are they, they because maybe they're like individual ones, like they don't feel quite as momentous. Um again, you might want to talk to a 25-year-old. Maybe they have a different perspective than I do. Um I, you know, Glow On by Turnstile is one of the most acclaimed albums of the past 3 years and also like super important, but I don't think that's going to have the same sort of you know, presence. You know, it might be like the number thirty five or whatever. And I'm just interested to see where like Renaissance happens. But I like the thing I like about Jake's question is that uh it implies that music publications are still going to be making best of lists in uh twenty twenty nine or whatever. They will um, be. I know. Come <laughs> on. Come on. They'll be doing it or they'll be doing it on YouTube or
0: something or on, on yeah. TikTok. I mean On a personal level, I mean, I love the Big Thief record, you know, Dragon, New War Mountain, I Believe in You. I had to, like, look at my notes to – I mean, I love that record, but I haven't said that title in a while to get the word the the proper sequence of of words there correct. Um, That feels like a big record to me personally. I don't know on a cultural level. Like, if I were to make my own list of favorite albums, like, that would be at the top – Obviously, The War on Drugs, I Don't Live Here Anymore, is probably my most listened to album of the last three years. And I I could make a case, as we have in previous episodes, that The War on Drugs in general are like a very influential band. Um, Not necessarily because of that record, but I think that record is a great refinement of what they do. Um, But yeah, again, I don't know. Other than Punisher, I think Punisher would, I agree with you. I think that's like the default choice at this point um but again i think the pandemic is such a wild card in this decade and i i i feel like as we get further away from it i wonder how that's going to affect the art that came out of it because I, I feel like like with 911 for instance there were like 911 albums and 911 films in the immediate aftermath of it but then once we got away from it i feel like that stuff didn't age particularly well because 911 isn't really something People feel like revisiting.
1: Well, I think that is this it, and you know, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot are sort of seen as adjacent to that. Yeah, right. You're right. Although they don't directly address it
0: in the way that some other things did. Yeah, the pandemic was like addressed pretty directly. Yeah, and like, do you really want to be reminded of like this claustrophobic like era of your life? I mean, I know I don't. I mean, if I if I see. Like a film or a TV show where people are wearing masks. I'm like, I get depressed. You know, I, I just think... uh, I think most people are in that same boat. You know, we don't want to go back to that. So I don't know how that's going to affect the art. I think Punisher is so influential that it could transcend that. You know, and her audience is young enough too, where... You know, I I think that record could potentially move on. Maybe easier than like the Fiona Apple record. Mm -hmm. is the fiona apple record is that does that matter more to like people our age than teenagers and teen (laughs) i i don't know i don't know i don't have a sense of her reach in like the gen z world you know she is a gen x icon i love fiona apple but yeah i just wonder if she translates to that phoebe bridgers audience I, I also
1: wonder, some of the albums you brought up, like Big Thief and War on Drugs, and also I think you could put like St. Cloud, that's like the, uh, right. the top, that's like the top, the, like the the big three of 2020 Punisher, Bullcutters and St. Cloud. It's like- St. Cloud is I, like I, the dark horse there,
0: because I feel yeah. like that's a record that, it, it. it's an album that is critically adored, but it- you know it never reached critical mass it still feels like a record that you can feel like is yours it, it, the conversation yeah. about it isn't like oppressive in any way
1: so no. that
0: that's like a dark horse candidate i think in in this conversation
1: yeah i think that it, that will hold up really well and also i just you know, with like Big Thief and War on Drugs and Waxahachie, I just I'm not sure like those have like the critical mass around them the same way that Kid A or Yankee Hotel does or if anything does. I mean, my guess is that, you know, by the end of the decade, I don't know, Rolling Stone will maybe put like folklore at the top or, you know, if we're talking like weirdo, like I think the weirdo message board sites like Rate Your Music or Album of the Year will continue. In that case, you know, Ants from Up There, it's uh, it's theirs to lose.
0: Yeah, Beyonce and Taylor Swift are interesting because they're still obviously huge. But, like, are they 2020 artists or are they, like, 2000s artists who are making albums still at this point? You know what I mean? Like, these other albums that we're talking about, you know, I just feel like they're at different points in their career. It's like, wow, like, Beyonce and Taylor Swift, they're still making albums that are generationally defining at this point. I mean, it's kind of amazing like how long they've been able to hang around. I guess that's like the equivalent of Bob Dylan putting out Love and Theft and, Right. like that topping a list, you know? I, so right. they, they, it seems like they've reached that kind of level. Um, let's get to our next letter. This comes from Mitch in Niagara Falls. I love that as an IndieCast yeah. listener. Mitch from Niagara Falls. That's a great IndieCast name there. Um, that's a Hold Steady song. I love it. Hi, Stephen Ian. I have long been a fan of the Beastie Boys. Growing up in a small town in Canada and seeing the So What You Want video for the first time was like a signal from a cooler world that was beyond my grasp at age 12. The clothes, the music, the whole aesthetic really was aspirational. I still love the Beastie Boys, but I'm curious what you think of their legacy. I'm now a 41-year-old married man with two
1: kids. Wow, Mitch. Let me tell you about a band called Drive-By Truckers. (laughs)
0: And where I can see their influence most profoundly is in children's music. Seriously, every time I hear some cartoon rapping about a brontosaurus or something, it sounds like the Beastie Boys. He's got a point there. I never, yes, I never, I never made that connection, but I think he's right. It seems like their broader influence on contemporary music is absent. Thoughts? That's from Mitch. The Beastie Boys, where do they stand right now in culture, you think?
1: I I, I I get what uh, Mitch is saying in that if we're looking at tangible impact in twenty twenty three, like despite the fact that I don't know if they have like any actual impact on like hip hop as it exists, you could still make like a Twitter joke in the intergalactic cadence, and you know you can get off some laughs about that. Like people know exactly what you're talking about with the dun 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 dun. Like people <laughs> seem to know that. Um, and they're pretty obvious influence on pop star never stop never stopping which you know uh, that uh, a movie seen by like 25 people all who think it's the best movie like the best comedy of the 21st century but you know I, I think that what Mitch is describing is a pretty common experience for people our age uh, the sabotage video if you see that when you're a teen it's it's the coolest thing you could ever possibly imagine the Spike Jones video. Like, they're a rap group, but they're making punk music. And I like a few of the songs. I like Intergalactic. I like this Fatboy Slim Body Moving remix. But if I never hear Get It Together again in my life, I'll be a happy man. Um, but I just remember, you know, like any MTV addicted teen, I would buy the albums and, you know, I'd like the singles, but I, w- I guess I wasn't in a position to appreciate, you know, th- this is back when they were making like funk instrumentals and songs about Buddhism and, uh, you know, the, Mitch brings it up that the of the music was really aspirational. Um, you know, the whole grand royal extended universe, which kind of adjacent to maybe the pulp fiction world of you know, just lionizing certain forms of kitsch. As I got to like know the Beastie Boys and like get into their whole meanings, I really kind of rejected that part of them. Like, They just seemed emblematic of this New York centric idea of cool that... I found to be, I I just found it really unseemly. And also just the idea, like I, this is a personal problem. I know, but anytime art is presented to me as this will make you a better person, I just instantaneously want to reject it. That said, I do wish they were around. Uh, Their career arc happened now so that like people could complain about how they got woke after License to Ill. Like you'll see Ben Shapiro complaining about Paul's Boutique. (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, when did they get woke? That would have been. Was it Paul's boutique, or would it be like well, check your head?
1: I think check your head definitely ill communication. Like um Paul's <laughs> boutique is like when they changed a lot sonically, right? But, right. You know, they were still making like dumb shit songs. Like I mean, and I say like, that hey, like hey ladies, Eggman, our- yeah.
0: Yeah, Hey Ladies is on there and is on Paul's Boutique. Yeah, Eggman lo- <laughs> and whatnot. I love the scenario like where Ben Shapiro is doing a show about the Beastie Boys getting woke. That's so funny. <laughs> um, I recently revisited License to Ill like when I wrote my best debut albums of all time piece. And, um, I really love that record, and it's probably the Beastie Boys record I'm most interested in listening to now. Maybe because it's the farthest removed from like anything that could happen now type album. (laughs) You know, like just this unabashedly bro type record that has like Led Zeppelin samples and like Black Sabbath samples and uh, is really dumb, but like in a smart way. I I just think that's like a really enjoyable record. And I, I feel like that record has aged better than some of the 90s stuff. And maybe that's just i don't know i i it's so tough in hip-hop because it moves so fast and like legacy artists tend to get left behind in kind of like a cruel way like you know like they they're not allowed to hang around in the way that like old rock bands are like a, you can have an old rock band that hasn't put out like a great album in 20 years but people still want to see them and they'll still talk about like, how much they love them and that doesn't happen in hip-hop really so that's affected their reputation i don't know i i I just feel like in the 90s like in the moment they were were they the most beloved band i feel like they might have been i feel like they, they were the ones that were looked at as the hippest best taste you know they kind of cut across all these different genres and I don't, I don't hear them talked about at
1: all anymore. Yeah, I, I think that you know, gosh, if we're talking about like the drive-by truckers is a band that your dad likes, and I, I, you know, I, I, to the point of like we're <laughs> licensed to ill, kind of oddly holds up. Maybe not like better. It's it. it I, I I hear that because it's so distinct. It is almost like a motley crew record in the sense that like maybe its politics aren't great, and um, and yet it's just such its own thing that it almost transcends time. It's, like, dated in a good way, whereas, you know, a lot... We, we talk about this with uh, De La Soul last time around, where, like, stuff like that and Public Enemy and, um you know, that kind of late 80s, early 90s hip-hop is, if you're of a certain age, it's, like, the epitome of cool, the epitome of, you know, music that was, um, you know, very sample-based and so it's forth. It's like comfort
0: and, music, I think, if yeah. you were a Gen Xer like
1: that era Yeah, there's hip-hop. so many there's so many restaurants you can go to nowadays <laughs> where like they'll play 90s hit. like they'll right. they'll play like Wu-Tang or whatever and you know that's like totally normal.
0: It's like the motown of the 90s really. It, it, exactly. It's so
1: comforting
0: to listen to that stuff and it's it's funny to phrase it that way because at the time, you know, it was maybe perceived as dangerous in mm-hmm. some ways or or edgy and it's not anymore. To the point where, you know, I'm sure there's younger people that maybe even think that stuff is corny now. Oh, absolutely. I think there's an aspect of the Beastie Boys now that I could see scanning as corny to someone who's a teenager or, or 20s. Like these white guys rapping and then doing like hardcore punk instrumentals at the same time.
1: Well, they were corny to me a little bit in in my teen years as well, because, you know, when I was listening to like No Limit or like Nas or Wu-Tang, I'm like, why do I need to like listen to these guys doing these like 1985 flows? Like, you know, but the videos are cool. So, but I'm with with Mitch, though, like the So What You Want video. I
0: remember that was awesome. Yeah. And turning that up really loud, just being like, this is like the coolest music ever. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know. See, this is another instance. Maybe we got to bring the endless scroll people on here and just be yeah. like sit sit by grandpa's rocking chair and tell I'm just going to throw out bad names and you tell me if if young people care about this. Uh, you know, and then and then grandpa's going to take like a 3-hour nap. Um <laughs> all right, what
1: we got time for for one more letter, and this is a short letter. Uh, do you want to read this one? Yeah, this comes from John John from Oakland and when you say it's short, it's Coheed and Cambria, yay or nay? So, I mean, get to the point. I love it, John from Oakland. Um, we've we, we've <laughs> got we've had this format before, the
0: yay or nay format.
1: Who, like, who was that about? It was Incubus. It's <laughs> it <was laughs> Incubus, which, by the way, this guy, Incubus touring with Action Bronson, <laughs> like at the Hollywood Bowl. I, I, I almost want to go just to see what that experience is like for fucking Action oh, Bronson. Man. I don't know, this this might become a segment
0: on our show, yay or nay. Someone just throws out a band. Just like we're throwing out bands to the Endless Scroll people. So we can find out if 24-year-olds like like the band. People can ask us about Incubus and Coheed and Cambria. Uh, do we need to explain who Coheed and Cambria are? Can we assume that our audience knows like who the hell that is?
1: I get the feeling that our audience, in addition to buying Decoration Day, might have bought that Coheed and Cambria album from 2003 with a favorite house, Atlantic, in Keeping Secrets of Silent Earth. Well, okay. Three. <laughs> See, I barely know what you're talking about when you say that. So
0: maybe we should just give like a little bit of background on this band. Fine. Are they like, what's the way to describe them? Like a prog emo band?
1: yeah totally so um back when i dj'd a emo night la like there was a time where i did that um i would get like i remember someone came up and asked if i would play a coheed and cambria song i'm like no i'm playing like late you know little did i know that uh i was in the minority there so they definitely they definitely uh emerged in an era where if you like coheed and cambria you probably liked you know my chemical romance or fallout boy but the actual music itself is way 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 prog um you know it's like straight up Dungeons and Dragons shit and I say that lovingly um they have like multi-part suites they have like characters who recur throughout uh multiple albums they have like several album arcs and so yeah I think that like to a certain degree they're like emo Kind of flavored, but really just a straight up prog band.
0: Yeah, can I? I I just want to read some of these album titles to give people an idea of like how proggy this band is. So we have Good Apollo on Burning Star 4 Volume 1 From Fear Through the Eyes of Madness that came out in 2005. That's one album title. That's one album title. Uh, 2007 Good Apollo on Burning Star 4 Volume 2. No World for Tomorrow. It's like they're throwing in... okay because It says, I'm Burning Star 4. The 4 is written in Roman numerals. So you think, okay, that's part of the suite. But no. <laughs> they're dropping <laughs> the volume 1 and 2 after that. Then they have the Afterman albums. Afterman Ascension. Then the Afterman Dissension. That's in 2012 and 2013. And then... We have Vaxus Act 1... The unheavenly creatures and Vax's Act Two, a window of the waking mind. So yeah, I mean, just ridiculously convoluted albums.
1: Also, and the album guy's voice. like, it's very Geddy Lee,
0: very Geddy Lee. So to get back to the question, I'm going to say philosophically, yay. I like the idea of this band. I like that they're out there doing this. I love any band that cuts against the grain of like what's fashionable and is following their hearts. And catering to like a rabid, devoted cult. I always think that's cool when bands do that. Uh, But in terms of music I actually want to listen to, I have to say nay. Uh, (laughs) This is not for me. Again, I love the idea of it. I bless their hearts. I, I endorse what they do philosophically, but I'm not putting on a Coheed and Cambria record for myself.
1: Yeah. I put, uh, I blurbed a favor house Atlantic when Vulture did the best emo out, best emo songs of all time list. And I think a lot of modern, I guess, modern emo or whatever you want to call it, it from a similar point where like you were listening, you could listen to the Strokes and this band at the same time. And so a lot of bands probably are influenced by both of them. But yeah, they, I like the fact they exist Largely because like whenever there's a band of this ilk that gets that popular for that long, they can take newer bands on tour. I think they took Foxing on tour once and, you know, they kind of opened up a lane for circus survive and all those bands that I'm also not very into. And, you know, my, I would probably be able to have a lot more bylines and so forth. If I like, if I could pretend to like this band, um, similar to incubus, but yeah, I think it's a fun band to kind of front like you like online. Um, Rather than to actually listen to, but yeah, favorite house Atlantic, Blood Red Summer, those are bangers. Can't say I've ever listened to anything else, although I did try to sample the intro <laughs> from uh, that two thousand three album when I was like playing around on MPC because it sounds like pretty fucking awesome.
0: So that that, that two thousand three album is called In Keeping Secrets of Silent Earth Colon Three. Is the name of that album came out in October of two thousand three. That means that you have. About six months to get into that record, so you can write the Stereo Gum 20th anniversary, make a cool 200 bucks. I think you should okay. do it, Ian. You got plenty
1: of time. Yeah, me get and to Claudio. Work. Maybe, maybe, maybe I just interview Claudio Sanchez. Uh, you know, I'm da- I'm down to chop it up with him.
0: now reach the part of the episode that we call recommendation corner where ian and i talk about something that we're into this week ian why don't you go first
1: so you know like most fridays i'll probably recommend listening to braid's uh midwest emo masterpiece frame and canvas but this week i'm going to do so because it's actually being reissued and remastered it's a special 25th edition um out on polyvinyl uh this is basically the album that you know launched polyvinyl to a national uh, level. Um, so again, I know it's like kind of corny to recommend remasters or reissues because usually like they just throw in a bunch of B-sides or they just make it louder than it was in 1998. But I think this one is, this one actually makes a difference, not just in the fact that it's louder. It is, but, um, it's, it's a much different production aesthetic. Like there's more separation. The bass is, you can actually hear the bass now. And this gets into, like, kind of hot take territory because Jay Robbins is a guy who is super, uh, you know, super influential and revered in the emo-slash-post-hardcore world. He produced Jawbox, Dismemberment Plan, Texas is the Reason, Promise Ring. And some of those albums, like, actually don't sound that great. <laughs> Um, so I'm happy he gets a second crack at him. Um, and so this one just sounds like it could be made in 2023. I think Braid is the kind of band that doesn't, gets a little, not underrated, but underappreciated compared to like, say, Sunday Day Real Estate or American Football or even The Promise Ring because they just are so, um... Those are just a great band. There's not much more to say about it. But now when you listen to this album, you get to see like how all four of them playing together is just this incredible beast of, it's like, these are songs that are impossible to replicate on an acoustic guitar. And I think that's important. Um, So yeah, this is basically like everything that Midwest Emo is capable of doing. This is the album. So uh, give that one another spin this weekend.
0: So in my part of the of the world, uh, we're finally getting sixty degree days this weekend. So I am already picking out my patio soundtrack, my cookout soundtrack. I got big plans. I'm going to make beer brats this weekend. I think on Easter Sunday. Uh, I'm I'm pumped to be outside listening to music. So that's definitely informing my choice this week for recommendation corner. I want to talk about an album that came out. Last month that I will be playing, I'm sure, at some point on the patio. It's called Radio Gate. It's by a band called Sluice. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. S-L-U-S. It's Sluice? I believe it's
1: Sluice. Like Rhymes Lewis, with Lewis? Except with an S. Yeah, sure. <laughs>
0: Sluice. S-L-U-I-C-E. It's, uh, it's a project of a North Carolina singer-songwriter named Justin Morris. And look, I'm going to do a very hacky thing here. And I'm just going to lift a line... From the press release for this record, because it really s- says it all more than I could if I was just going to rattle off a bunch of adjectives describing the music. right at the top of the press release it says, "Recommended if you like." M.J. Lenderman, songs Ohio, will Oldham. I can't do anything better than that. This is are these hymnals for dirt bags? these are these are hymnals for dirt bags. This is patio music through and through. This is music that literally will put a beer in your hand. And a brought in your other hand. Uh, I can't wait to play this on the patio. I'm so excited. I'm gonna be firing off tweets all weekend, just taking pictures of tapes, taking screenshots, and just saying hell yeah over songs <laughs> as I sit in the sun and have a great time. It's gonna be fabulous. So check out this record, especially if you're gonna be near a patio this weekend. Radio Gate
1: by sluice i think what you're doing is putting into like the the ether the idea of like us doing a visual youtube component of IndieCast, where you're like doing the kind of like self cam and like raising the beer i think people might want to see that so well we'll like see like yeah let's uh, It's just another thing we're trying to manifest in the world it's gonna just be hell yeah or no hell yeah that's gonna be the only <laughs>
0: critical uh application going on in that context Uh, No other words are necessary uh, when you're on the patio. Uh, Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.